0: The damage will be in the billions of dollars and damages continue to be incurred as floodwaters continue to
1: rise. Right. It ain't over.
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm too scared in case I fall
1: off my chair.
2: to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, stuck in
1: the middle From with you. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WTPA. In Maui, Hawaii on K-A-K-U. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Sandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Well, we will get to the latest in the the fights, the wars, the uh, standoff going on in Washington, D.C. concerning U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and his accuser. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. We'll get to that in a little bit. But while much of the nation and the media are focused on the political fights over the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., Hurricane Florence is still wearing out the Carolinas, where residents have endured an agonizing week of violent winds, torrential rain, widespread flooding, power outages and yes, death. Frustration and sheer exhaustion are building as thousands of people wait to go home a full week after the storm began battering the coast. But whether residents are exhausted by it or media and politicians in Washington are all too happy to move on, the disaster continues in the Carolinas and neighboring states where Florence is blamed for at least 37 human deaths at this hour a toll which vastly underestimates both what could be the ultimate death toll from the storm and many other factors that are only now beginning to emerge, including the toxic toll That threatens humans, animals, and the environment as a whole. We'll discuss some of those concerns in our upcoming Green News report with Desi Doyen a little bit later in the show. But the tragedy and continuing threats are ongoing a week after Florence first made landfall in the Carolinas. On Thursday, Duke Energy, the largest electric utility company in the United States and a huge player in the Carolinas, activated a high-level emergency alert at a retired coal-fired power plant in North Carolina as floodwaters from the nearby Cape Fear River overtopped an earthen dike at the facility and inundated a large lake, raising concerns of a potential breach. Company employees notified state regulators overnight that the 1,100-acre lake at the LV Sutton Power Station near Wilmington was at the highest level of alert under its emergency action plan. Copy of that plan reviewed by the AP defines an emergency level one event as, quote, urgent exclamation. Dam failure is imminent or in progress. The reservoir is a former cooling pond for the Sutton power plant and is adjacent to three large coal ash dumps. The coal fired power plant was retired in 2013 and replaced with a new, cleaner generating station that runs off natural gas. A landfill that was under construction at the site ruptured over the weekend, spilling enough material to fill 180 dump trucks. Coal ash contains arsenic, mercury, and other toxic metals that may now be in the floodwaters. The site has received more than 30 inches, or nearly three feet, of rainfall. As a result of former Hurricane Florence with the nearby Cape River uh, Cape Fear River expected to crest not until the weekend, state regulators who had trouble even reaching the area were finally able to take samples of the water and were awaiting the results of their own testing before determining whether there were any violations of clean water quality rules, according to a spokesman for the state environmental agency. Duke's handling of its ash waste has faced intense scrutiny since a drainage pipe collapsed under a waste pit at an old plant back in 2014, triggering a massive spill that coated 70 miles of the Dan River in gray sludge. The utility later agreed to plead guilty to nine Clean Water Act violations and pay $102 million in fines and restitution for illegally discharging pollution from ash dumps At five North Carolina power plants, it plans to close all of its ash dumps by 2029. But that's 10 more years, 10 years at least, of potential hurricane Florence's and worse, placing people and wildlife in toxic jeopardy. At the H.F. Lee power plant near Goldsboro on Thursday, three coal ash dumps capped with soil were underwater after flooding from the Neuse River. Staff from the Waterkeeper Alliance and Environmental Group uh, visited the site by boat on Wednesday and took photographs and collected samples of gray-colored sludge and water they said was washing off into the floodwaters. State officials said they have also received reports that the earthen dam at a hog lagoon in Duplin County has breached, spilling feces and feces and urine. According to figures released on Wednesday by the state, at least four other lagoons had some structural damage. 17 had been flooded by nearby rivers, and 21 were so full they overflowed. Three and a half million chickens and turkeys and 5,500 hogs have been killed in flooding from Florence as rising North Carolina rivers swamped dozens of farm, uh, farm buildings where these animals were being raised for market, according to state officials. That, too, will result in a uh, toxic mess that needs to be cleaned up for quite some time. An environmental threat is also posed by human waste as low-lying municipal sewage plants flood and are now being added to the toxic cocktail that residents are coping with. And all of this comes today, which marks one year, just one year, since the devastating landfall of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico where the death toll has now officially been raised to 2,975 after a number of post-storm studies determined that the previous official death toll uh, in the U.S. territorial island uh, was just 64 and was absurdly low, failing to take into account thousands of deaths from both the imminent storm, uh, the immediate storm event itself, and the long tail of its tragic aftermath, which... Puerto Ricans are still recovering from today, even as the president of the United States, while Hurricane Florence was coming ashore last week, belittled those numbers by challenging that new death toll as a Democratic plot meant to make him look bad. But uh, but this notion that a natural disaster like Florence or Maria or even the 9-11 attacks that it's all essentially over after the worst of the immediate impact has ended, is not only the musing of an arguably unbalanced president. That sort of thinking, uh, argues disaster historian Scott Knowles in a recent New York Times op-ed, has arguably made both disaster preparation and response much less effective than it might otherwise be. So what can we learn about both the ongoing disasters in the Carolinas right now, and in Puerto Rico, before the nation's attention has entirely moved on yet again, only to return once there's another imminent disaster, and by then it's largely too late to mitigate its worst uh, impacts. Joining us now is Dr. Scott Knowles. He is a disaster historian and the interim department head of Drexel University's Center for Science, Technology, and Society, where he focuses on risk and disaster particularly in modern cities, technology, and public policy, so I suspect he has plenty to keep him busy of late. His most recent book is The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America. He's also a faculty research fellow of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. Oh, Professor Knowles, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
0: Thank you, Brad. It's good to be with you.
1: Uh, we spoke last uh, to you uh, a little more than a year ago, I think it was, just after Hurricane Harvey in Houston and then Hurricane Irma in Puerto Rico and Florida last year, uh, but just before the devastating Hurricane Maria. So I, wanna, I want to get to uh, what lessons we may already be able to take from uh, Florence, but let's start with Maria, Scott. You uh, wrote in your op-ed for The New York Times last week. As Florence was barreling toward the East Coast and as Donald Trump seemed obsessed with challenging these new official death toll numbers from Hurricane Maria uh, as a Democratic Party conspiracy against him. He was charging that the death toll had only been in the double digits when he visited the island after the uh, storm, just after the storm last year. So it couldn't have risen to 3000. You write that Trump, Mr. Trump seemed to define that storm hurricane maria as an event in a specific moment if you died later because of the long-term effects of a hurricane for instance then to his way of thinking your death should not be counted in the toll setting aside his paranoia and death toll denialism it's hardly the first time even in modern times where there have been disputes over death tolls since we don't really have any hard rules do we for how these numbers are determined after an event like a, like a hurricane. And, and if we don't have hard rules, should we? Is that even possible, Scott?
0: Well, we do have hard rules in, in the immediate aftermath. I mean, while the disaster is unfolding and in the days after, that kind of work falls to local emergency managers and to first responders and to coroner's offices. And, and that work is not nice work to do, but they do it professionally and they do it after disasters and they give us these immediate snapshots of the impact of a of a disaster. And it's pretty clear cut there because the attribution of the death seems, you know, very clear. Someone drowned. I mean usually in a hurricane it's it's drowning. Mm-hmm. Where it gets more difficult is when you start to go, you know, a month out, two months or six months or longer, then the question becomes, well, what kind of deaths can we attribute to the disaster? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the CDC's Center for Disease Control's own guidelines, the CDC is very clear on the kinds of deaths that can be indirectly attributed to disasters. Mm -hmm. And so when Trump says, no, it's not possible if we had a number of a couple of dozen, and now we go to almost 3,000, that's just not possible. Well, that means he's just not aware of the guidelines of the U.S. government when it comes to this kind of thing. Those studies that were done using the CDC guidelines, Mm -hmm. the ones that have made so much news lately, one done by George Washington University and the other done by Harvard, uh, the president might not appreciate studies that are done by epidemiologists, but the fact is they use very sound methodology to show that The factors of the storm had these long-term implications of public health, including death. So the president is wrong. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you, you offer some insight in that op-ed that I hadn't even thought about following, um, you know, Trump's denialism of the, the deaths in the aftermath of Maria. Uh, you write, the president's disaster logic tells us that firefighters who are now sick after responding to the World Trade Center after the September 11 attacks are not victims and that soldiers suffering PTSD should not be counted among the casualties of war. Nothing matters, you write, unless it happened in the event If you don't die then and there, you don't count. And, of course, uh, that's his thinking, but that thinking is by no means confined to just, you know, Trump uh, crazy think only. We're still fighting for health care for the long-tail effects of events like 9-11 and, of course, all of our various wars and years of trauma that's so devastating to so many uh, of these, uh, yes, victims who didn't die in the initial event. What needs to change in order for us to see things Differently in that regard, and regard those folks as victims, even if you know they are victims who are struggling and dying years later after the specific event.
0: I think, to me, Brad, this is a really crucial question, and and just to bring it back to September 11, let's say, you know, this is a event that obviously you know, killed many Americans. It galvanized America, even in partisan times, mm-hmm. and you know what was quite interesting, I think, after, I mean, more than a decade after, is that there's this health registry, and firefighters who were exposed, who worked on the pile, who were looking for survivors or looking for bodies for weeks and months after, they're sick now, and some have died. And, you know, what needs to change for Americans to come to grips with that kind of long-term thinking? I I think we have to talk very, very clearly and very honestly about the impact of disasters not being confined just to the moment in which they occur. This is also a way of talking about issues that often Americans don't like to talk about. We like to think of war as something that ends when the armistice is signed. Mm -hmm. We like to think of environmental impact as something that ends once the factory is closed. But the reality is not that way. The reality is that in our society, we take risks. We fight wars. We run an industrial system that has long-term impact. And that, so that's not just a struggle about disasters. I mean, that's a struggle about what gets counted and what doesn't get counted as impact. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would add to that is this is deeply political. There are winners and losers in the count. And there's very good reason mm-hmm. for elected officials or factory owners to not want a complete count because that will make it seem like these activities are not as risky as
1: they actually are. Mm. You, uh, on that uh, line of thinking, you note in, uh, again in your Times piece that uh, defining a disaster as an event has a history extending to the 1960s. And of course, I had no idea that we hadn't regarded them that way previously. Uh, you know, looking at it as a single event, how how were they defined? prior to that, uh, and, and how and why... De- of course, last time you were on, I had no idea there was such a thing as, uh, you know, a disaster historian, so now I'm learning <laughs> there's actually uh, a time when we saw these things suddenly as an event. Uh, how were they defined prior to that, and, and how and why did that change in the 1960s?
0: Well, part of the answer to your question is that the definition of a social phenomena like a disaster goes right alongside the development of the tools to ask those kind of questions. So part of the answer is about the emergence of social science, sociology, anthropology, public health as a discipline as well. You know, so now we had in the 20th century, we did have experts who could begin to ask these kind of questions in a sort of scientific way, if you will. Before that, um, you know, people thought of disasters go back a a little bit further, maybe into the 18th century and the early 19th century, disasters were often defined as acts of God. They were seen as a a, a supernatural visitation, maybe for um, some sort of cause, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was, uh, disasters were often defined that way. Or they were treated as um, sort of, you know, one-offs, not anything that you would necessarily try to build some kind of scientific understanding around. The other thing we know from history, of course, is that people often, I think, in some ways were more sophisticated than us, in that they, if you were an agricultural community, and we know this going back many societies, they laid aside seeds and they laid aside food for bad harvest years. You know, famine and the idea mm. that disaster is cyclical in return is something I think that was pretty well known to people who lived in more traditional agricultural societies. When you when you move into industrial society in the 19th and 20th century, well, things start to change a little bit. And as we try to bring science to understanding disaster, we get very, many clinical about it, which is good in some ways, but in other ways, I think it um, maybe limited our thinking a little bit mm. to defining disaster in this very rigid way. Just briefly to your to your question about connecting it to nuclear war in the 1960s fifties and sixties, the United States government was preparing for one disaster and one disaster alone. And that was nuclear attack. Mm. And so everything got folded into that. I mean, the, the way that you prepared for a hurricane in the 1960s was to prepare for nuclear attack. So the way you prepared for a wildfire was to prepare for nuclear attack. I mean, mm. You see where I'm going. Yeah. Everything got, got pulled into that black hole of civil defense preparedness. And they funded a lot of research and what they wanted to know fundamentally was, would society crumble in the aftermath of a nuclear attack? They weren't worried too much about what came before. They weren't worried about too much about what would come after. And I think we're still in some ways dealing with the impact of that sort of thought process yeah. about defining disaster in that very, very specific way. It limited us, I think, in very important ways.
1: Yeah, it, it looks at these events as a single moment in time. And right. uh, as you argue, it means that, uh, you know, federal agencies like FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, ends up dealing with these events as simply a, a, a response to them rather than uh, preparing for them, rather than prep work. It limits what they do. How much does FEMA... Uh, how much do they do? Do you know in, in prep work versus actual emergency response? Uh, and are they the right federal agency to do the advance work that should be done? Or uh, is another uh, federal agency needed for something like that?
0: The great majority of what FEMA does is focused on immediate pre-disaster preparation and then uh, immediate disaster response. Mm-hmm. So the two, you know, so the, the longer-term historical Uh, tradition and what's going to come in the longer term of recovery, that usually doesn't fall to them. There have been moments in FEMA's history, and I would point to the 1990s as a very critical moment. When the Cold War ended, there was a substantial rethink in Washington about what FEMA could accomplish. And in the Clinton years, they, um, under the leadership of James Lee Witt, who was the FEMA director in those years, they actually did start some grant programs and really thinking about disasters in much more I would say, long-term thinking of preparation and community-based preparation. Hmm. That was an important moment, but September 11 turned the clock back to 1951, Hmm. and we went right back to this sort of, you know, everything got pulled in and and just replaced nuclear attack with terrorism, and we were right back in the same, same boat. So FEMA, I think, is a... people like to kick FEMA around, uh, it's easy for politicians to blame FEMA for their lack of vision in providing the resources for long-term planning for disaster. Are they the right agency, the way they're currently configured? I don't believe so. But that's because they're wildly underfunded. Mm-hmm. But in the federal bureaucracy, we do have these tools. The United States Coast Guard, the Geological Survey, the National Institute of Science, uh, Standards and Technology, excuse me, NOAA. We have a very rich set of federal agencies with a lot of science and a lot of capacity, but they're not integrated to deal with disaster. And sometimes they work against each other, unfortunately. And the best example of that in the midst of Hurricane Florence was that the um, ITE took money away from FEMA under the under. So FEMA has now been put under the Department of Homeland Security. They were not; they were independent in the 1990s. Right. So there does need to be. I'm afraid I may be, wonking out here on emergency management. So you can stop me, but I mean, I, I think that we have we really do need to rethink like we had in the 1990s about how to integrate these agencies and get serious about real preparedness and real long-term recovery. Otherwise, we're just going to be dealing with these disasters one by one by one.
1: One by one, and, um, you know, it's troubling both at the federal and the state level. I think we talked to you, as I said uh, last time, after Harvey when they were dealing with some terrible uh, development decisions that have been made in uh, in Houston knowing what we know about climate change now and and uh, the, the worsening uh, effects of global warming and then you have North Carolina which actually chose to ignore actually passed a law barring the use of the state's own, sea level rise uh, study, the data, uh, in in their own development planning. North Carolina is hardly the only state uh, that seems to want to deny away the worsening effects of climate change. But that seems like it makes uh, preparing for these things far more difficult than it it should be, and it seems like that is continuing at the federal level. Uh, Brock Long, the FEMA director, uh, talked, I think it was on Wednesday, about rebuilding after the storm and the need for mitigation, but even he didn't specify exactly what it was we needed to mitigate from. I mean, this seems like a crippling position right. for the federal government and our chief disaster official to, uh, to, to have to not even be able to talk about the, the real threats, much less prepare for them.
0: That's why I have a lot of sympathy for what Brock Long is up against and what Craig Fugate was up against before him. And we can go back uh, to FEMA director's going on back the the fact is Brad that the most powerful lobby in any state house across the country is the construction industry mm. and you know in the people who look at this they often talk about what they call the fire sector F I R E finance insurance and real estate mm-hmm. i call it the the finance construction complex mm. and so there's very, very strong deep-pocketed interest in buildings, and that's across the country, mm-hmm. and that, those rules are handled almost entirely at the state and local level. So federal policy can change, but it will still have a lot of trouble telling the state of Georgia, the state of North Carolina, the state of South Carolina what they can and can't allow along a coastline, or in California what they can and can't allow Uh, in a wildfire corridor. So now you could look at that and say, wow, that's really hopeless. You've just made the problem 50 times worse. But maybe, American history gives us a guide here, that's a a little bit of a silver lining because we do have some experience with doing things at a local and state level, and then that becomes a national trend. So I don't want to give in on this yet. And I think Mm -hmm. Your listeners will be interested to know, I mean, if they look into the, the local politics of land use after disaster, they're mm-hmm. going to find it in some states, like Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and California. There's been a lot of innovation there, policy innovation, to try to not necessarily get people to abandon their property or abandon the coastline, but at least to be aware of other options available, not just to rebuild quickly, before anything has been learned after the disaster so that's the kind of politics that I can get behind I mean that's a very local um kind of argument politics to have what the FEMA director can do from it from Washington I'm afraid is is pretty limited
1: yeah and that uh, you know if you look at it on that level if you look at it on the level of uh, of development and the construction industry that crosses uh you know Republican and democratic lines alike that's not you know sure. only a matter of uh, global warming denial on behalf of the fossil fuel industry. Scott Knowles, I've got uh, just a minute or two left here. Let me see if I can hit uh, a few uh, questions. And this may be more a meteorological question. Uh, don't know if this is in your wheelhouse or not, but there's been a lot of talk since Florence uh, and before that our hurricane category system, the Saffir-Simpson scale uh, the rates, categories, uh, hurricanes from category one right. to five, that it's not particularly helpful. And it's even misleading. We saw just before Florence made landfall, the storm was downgraded, quote unquote, downgraded to a, a category one. A lot of people thought, oh, then, you know, we're OK. This won't be that bad after all, even though the huge threat persisted and continues to persist. For uh, you know, flooding, storm surge, etc., is the Saffir-Simpson scale a problem as you see it, and is there a solution uh, on the horizon, as far as you know?
0: There is now, I would say, an emerging consensus in emergency management that the Saffir-Simpson scale is now in the way of effective risk communication. Um, and you know, this is I, I'm very sympathetic to the challenges of risk communication because you know one of the hardest things for any public official to do is to order an evacuation. And maybe the only thing harder than that is to order people to shelter in place. So they want to give them as much information as they can. But as you pointed out, unfortunately, Saffir Simpson's emphasis is on wind. And mm-hmm. they used to think that wind and storm storm surge were absolutely correlated, but now they're not. And what we're also seeing, Harvey and Florence have shown us that you know these are rainfall records that are being that are being set. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a whole second act to these hurricanes, which can be more devastating than the wind. We're going to be, I think you should be watching after this storm. You're going to see meteorologists and emergency managers really coming together and trying to figure out other ways to communicate uh, more effectively. And it really does, again, come back to some of these issues we were talking about before. I mean, science wants to be able to communicate very clearly and effectively to people what risk is, but they have to also be aware that there's a cultural and psychological elements here. People have lived through a hurricane and they didn't drown. Well, they may not be as likely to evacuate. And poor folks who have nowhere to evacuate to, or it's going to cost them money, there has to be other ways to try to communicate to people other than just giving them uh, that that number. One thing I can tell you, I've already been hearing I, I, this language about a storm being quote unquote, downgraded. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going I don't think we're going to see that again. I mean, I oh, think good. now people are saying that's too dangerous. you can't it's it's really potentially going to put lives in the in the balance
1: I know that uh, in much of uh, the work that I do on uh, things like election integrity and in the environment and money and politics and so forth, there are there are things that drive me crazy that because they can be so easily and simply dealt with if, you know, we have the political will uh, and b- often the honesty to do so. Uh, last question here. Are there similar things when it comes to disasters that you see uh, in case after case, uh, lessons that we seem to fail to learn or act on—that uh, could otherwise, you know, simple things that could make a huge difference in the the costs, uh, human, and otherwise of of such things—or are disasters more like this? Uh, more of a case by case thing, where each one's so unique, there's no one real simple action that, you know, that that can help, that, uh, you know, you'd like listeners to know uh, is the one thing to take away that we need to change?
0: That is, uh, what, a, what a great question. I, I, two very quick things. One is we have to get very serious about the issue of environmental protection and not just acting like disasters are aberrant things that are only going to happen once in a while. So you started your discussion about the coal ash, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, animal waste in North Carolina. That's a huge environmental nightmare, but that you can find a nightmare like that waiting in all 50 states. So we have to be serious that a disaster is not some separate special moment. Environmental protection laws and regulations have to apply there um, across the board. The other thing I would say, and people could just get serious about this right now, uh, is that our system of, of insurance in the United States is not adequate to deal with these. And this is a story you can watch over the next few months. A very small number of people in North Carolina have flood insurance. And what are they going to do? Some of them are going to be able to have the money to rebuild their homes, and many are not. That's moral failing in this country, I think. Uh, We require people to have auto insurance. Uh, We require them to have property insurance, but we don't. Uh, We haven't quite figured out yet a system to make sure that people can get affordable, just like we've dealt with with Obamacare. Mm -hmm. We have the same issue with flood and also with fire and also with earthquake. And this is an issue you're going to hear more and more about. I think we have to have a real honest discussion about that after this, after Hurricane Florence.
1: Well, we uh, hope to have more discussions with you, Scott Knowles, on these issues, although uh, when you're here, it probably means something terrible has either happened or yeah, is about to happen. Sorry about that. But yeah, sorry. but I do look always look forward to talking to you. I'll point folks over to your uh, op-ed at the New York Times last week what Trump doesn't get about disasters uh, and to your website, slowdisaster.com. and I would urge folks to follow you on the Twitters at US of Disaster, Uh, Professor Scott Knowles of Drexel University, or or as I like to think of him, the Master of Disaster. Scott, thanks so much for joining us again today. Thank you, Brad. Okay, quick break, and we are back with the the latest in Washington, D.C., the battle over the U.S. Supreme Court. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
2: bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All I want is someone
1: to believe
2: Honesty
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Want to get to the latest in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court stuff. Uh, But Desi Doyen... Didn't get to say hello to you earlier. Hello, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Hello. Uh, You had some thoughts on what uh, Scott Knowles, uh, what we were talking about there with uh, the master of disaster, Scott Knowles. Yeah,
2: well, if there's one thing that I have uh, noticed and learned in the coverage of all of these extreme weather disasters that have just been, you know, just exploding uh, over these past few years, so to speak, so to speak, um, is that it really is important to have a go bag ready, an emergency kit ready to walk out the door instantly if you have to. Like, for example, the folks in the Boston natural gas explosions mm. just last week, yeah. you know, they weren't allowed to go back to their homes uh, for days. And then once they were allowed back, they only had a few minutes to pick up their important documents and prescriptions, things like that. You don't always have the kind of warning you think you might have. So gonna, it's a good idea to have it.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say, well, that's important to us because we live in Los Angeles. They so could have earthquakes. And uh, do you have a go bag ready, by the way? I do. Okay, but uh, but you're right. Then you mentioned uh, Boston. That it comes something like this. An event like this can happen anywhere, anytime. Not to freak people out, but wow. it does—it uh, does make sense to you know, be it, prepared. Yeah,
2: if there's if there's something that happens in your neighborhood, even that you have to leave quickly, you just never know. It's a good idea. There's a place you can go called Ready.gov. That's a starting point for you to figure out what you should have in your bag.
1: That's Desi Doyen going full prepper for you there. Um,
2: Mini-prepper. All
1: right, mini-prepper. Dr. Christine Blossie Ford, the woman who has accused Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of sexually assaulting her when they were in high school, quote, wishes to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee next week, quote, provided that we can agree on terms that are fair and which ensure Her safety, that according to her lawyer, Deborah Katz, on Thursday, in an email to the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Katz said that she would like to uh, discuss the conditions under which Dr. Ford would be prepared to testify next week, but said that a hearing on Monday is not possible and the committee's insistence that it occur when uh, that it occur then is arbitrary In any event, she writes, Dr. Ford has asked me to let you know that she appreciates the various options you have suggested. Her strong preference continues to be for the Senate Judiciary Committee to allow for a full investigation prior to her testimony. And of course, the White House at this hour is still refusing to request such an investigation from the FBI, even though back in 1991, The FBI was able to conduct such a probe of the Anita Hill allegations, which were much broader reaching than what we have here. A a single incident in this case, Uh, they were able to complete that work in 1991 in about three days. So I think what is uh, what is clear here, we discussed uh, at some length on uh, yesterday's broadcast, is that neither the Senate Republicans nor the White House want such an investigation. It's not that the FBI doesn't do these things. It's not that it would take too long. It's just that they don't want any such investigation because they don't want any additional information, I guess, to come out. They don't want to know what actually went on when Ford says that Kavanaugh attempted to rape her during a party back in the 80s in a room where she was pulled into uh, by Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge who is said to have witnessed the assault at the very least, but uh, Judge Mark Judge uh, has not been called to appear before the Judiciary Committee again because they don't want to know. Uh, am I uh, am I overstating that case? Does he do? I mean, because I can come up with no other reason why they wouldn't have a, even a cursory FBI investigation that would take a few days. They could do that investigation. they could have the testimony and they could still hold their vote to force this guy through on the American people for the rest of his life in time before the November six election, which is what they're really trying to avoid because they could lose the uh, control of the Senate.
2: Yeah, I, I I don't think they want to know. And also, they're not acting, neither Kavanaugh nor the Republicans, they're not acting like people who believe that this story is not true. They are acting like people who want to hide it. Mm. They are acting like people who do not wish to find out any of these facts because they I think actually believe it's true. If you look at any yeah. of their statements, they make it sound like, oh, well, you know, he was just a teenager. Oh, she must be mistaken. There are all kinds of excuses that they're coming up with that to me suggest they actually believe it really did happen. And I'm I'm also surprised that uh, Brett Kavanaugh himself uh, does not want to have an investigation either because now his name is going to well, be you're forever not, associated you're, with that.
1: You're, you're not surprised.
2: Well, you're right. I'm not surprised because I think that he knows that he did it. I think he knows that he's in trouble. But you would think an honest man, a man who did not commit any kind of uh, incident like the type that, I would of say, man, The
1: type of man we might like to put on the U.S. Supreme Court, for example. Yeah. yeah. Somebody
2: might say, yes, please, let's invest Yep. This I think that that's that's pretty telling. And I'm an think-
1: innocent man. Let's say an innocent okay. man would go. say if this was me and if somebody accused me of this and I like Brett Kavanaugh, uh, you know, he has claimed he. It does not remember anything about. Doesn't knows nothing about this. Was not at any party. If in fact it didn't happen, if somebody made this claim about me, I would say sure, investigate it. Bring in the FBI. Bring in whoever you want. If I know that it didn't happen, Kavanaugh is decidedly not doing that. No, is he?
2: and a lot of folks, um, also on the right wing media, especially, seem to be um, not clear on the concept that. If Dr. Ford is lying, then why would Dr. Ford want the FBI to investigate her? Because, of course, she would be then prosecuted for perjury if she lied to the FBI.
1: And revealed as a liar.
2: Exactly. Judiciary
1: Chair Chuck Grassley, of course, has scheduled a hearing on Monday. It is still scheduled for Monday, as far as I know, in which his uh, committee would hear only from Ford and Kavanaugh, not from Judge, not from anyone else uh, who she might have spoken to about this incident over the years. Uh, and if she does not appear on Monday, she will have lost her chance. That's what the that's the Republican story at this point, And they're sticking with it. Well, and I would say, by what, by the way, to that, fine then appear on national TV instead. Go give your story to 60 Minutes or to Rachel Maddow or something. The American people will still get to hear that story, will still get to hear those uh, claims and 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 size her up, and the questioning won't be nearly as difficult as it would be, and, and knowing the Republicans, as likely humiliating as it would be. Otherwise, if she does appear, she could just go tell her story on TV. I think she should call their bluff if they won't commit to a legitimate outside nonpartisan investigation and say the hell with them and just go on TV and tell her story. But maybe that's just me.
2: No, it's me too. I mean, I have one more thing. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's not a single Republican woman on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is exactly the same situation as in 1991 with Anita Hill. Not oh, not a noticed. single woman. I've noticed. Not one. Nothing has really changed for the Republican Party since 1991,
1: has it? Meanwhile, Kavanaugh was back at the White House on Thursday amid a week of visits that have included preparations for the possibility of that Senate testimony on Monday. That, according to a person involved in the confirmation process, uh, NBC News reports, in a private session on Tuesday, Kavanaugh was grilled by a, a, a small group of White House staff about his past, his dating life, and the accounts of his accuser in this case, Um who has given, uh, made these accusations about these events from the uh, early 1980s? Among the White House staffers participating in these sessions were White House counsel Don McGahn, communications director Bill Shine, formerly the uh, VP, was he VP or president? Uh, either way, uh, top guy over at Fox News who now runs the White House communications shop. So he should be helpful in coming up with any bs as necessary well sure he spent a career doing that he
2: did he did have a great job at fox news trying to hide bill o'reilly and yeah. uh, roger ailes all those guys yeah. with their sexual harassment serious accusations
1: also at the um uh, at, at these practice sessions was press secretary sarah sanders the chief white house liar after donald trump of course and the deputy press secretary raj shah the Liar's apprentice in this case (laughs) and an excellent liar in his own right. I don't want to belittle him. So, uh, yeah, this was the group that was apparently working with Kavanaugh. The source, according to NBC, said that Kavanaugh, uh, who returned to the White House for a third consecutive day on Thursday, is, quote, determined and hopeful and that it's up to him how he'd like to present himself on Monday if the Judiciary Committee does move forward with their scheduled hearings. But what choice is there here? What what choice about how to present himself? If he did not do it, and he knows nothing about it, as he claims, what does he have to practice saying? Again, I know that if this was me, and I knew nothing about this woman, or her claims, or the party that she says I attended while being stumbling drunk and tried to rape her, I'd say I have no idea what she is talking about. Period. I mean, really, what more is there to say if you're innocent? Unless, of course, you need to practice a story for some reason, as he appears to uh, reportedly be doing after, um, after three days of visiting the White House. Separately, a Republican Senate aide who has been briefed on Kavanaugh's preparation said the practice sessions, quote, have been going well, adding that he's spending his days as if a hearing will go forward on Monday. Again, not sure why you need three days of practice to say, I don't know what she's talking about. Meanwhile, uh, on Thursday, more than 50 protesters opposing the confirmation of Kavanaugh were arrested on Capitol Hill. The pro- uh, the uh, protesters on Thursday swarmed a range of Senate offices, including those of Senator Chuck Grassley, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and Senator Susan Collins, who is thought to be a key Republican swing vote. The protesters were chanting in part, we believe Christine Ford Groups fighting Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court say that a Judiciary Committee's lawyer's tweet shows that Republicans are biased against Christine Blasey Ford's allegations. You don't say Mike Davis, who is the chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee chair, Chuck Grassley, um, who is in charge of judicial nominations on behalf of the Republicans in the Senate. Davis tweeted late on Wednesday that he personally interviewed Kavanaugh as part of the committee's review, but was, quote, still waiting for Ford's lawyers to get back to him at the time. This was Wednesday night. And then he wrote uh, on Twitter, I believe, quote, unfazed and determined. We will confirm Judge Kavanaugh. That, of course, before she has even been interviewed, by uh, by the panel, uh, by the Republicans, much less offered any sort of public testimony. So even if even if she showed up, even if she gave hard evidence of what she says happened, apparently the Republicans don't care. We will confirm Judge Kavanaugh. They will confirm him anyway. So they have two, not one, but two accused sexual Predators, hello Clarence Thomas, then sitting on the nine-member U.S. Supreme Court for life. They don't care. They don't care about this woman's story. They plan to confirm her period. For some reason, then, the tweets by Davis were deleted. I guess he thought better of it. But that cat was already out of the bag. That cat was already out of the bag uh, days ago, weeks ago, when, uh, who was it, Orrin Hatch said, we are going to... Confirmed Judge Kavanaugh that before the uh, his own uh, Kavanaugh's own testimony had even begun. The uh, tone, writes AP, of Davis's tweets was a forceful admission of the GOP's push to confirm Kavanaugh with or without Ford's testimony. Davis says he deleted the tweets to avoid any further misinterpretation by left-wing media. What misinterpretation? I have no idea. Uh, It it seems uh, pretty clear what he was saying there, that they're going to uh, confirm him no matter what, even though without Ford's testimony, he appears to have perjured himself multiple times during sworn testimony to Congress. But they don't care. Democratic Senator Kristen Gillibrand of New York, meanwhile, says that Republicans are bullying Dr. Ford. She and uh, Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii held a press conference on Thursday with alumni from the Holton Arms School. That's the all-girls school in Maryland where Ford attended uh, in the 1980s and where now over 1,000, 1,000 former students have signed a letter in support of Ford. Gillibrand says it is bullying for Republicans to say Ford must show up on Monday or not at all. She says they want a he-said-she-said scenario because men are the ones who are usually believed in that case. All right, quick break, and we are back with the Green News Report and, yes, more Desi Doyen. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, New York Times, breaking news. While we were on break there, Michael Cohen... President Trump's former personal lawyer repeatedly spoke with prosecutors in the Russia inquiry during the past month. Uh Uh-oh. Nope, not going to do it. Not going to take the bait. At least (laughs) not now. we got to get to it. Our latest Green News report.
0: I know for many people this feels like a nightmare that just won't end.
2: Hurricane Florence flooding poses a toxic public health threat.
0: Know that you're not alone and people will be working to help you
2: as a long road of recovery lies ahead. Plus, Trump Interior Department rolls back more methane regulations.
1: All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky
0: comment. This is a tough hurricane. One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water.
1: Oh boy. This is your Green News Report. Hey, Desi Doyen. I know many folks in the media have moved on. I'm happy to say you have not moved on from Hurricane Florence.
2: No, we continue to track the impacts of that devastating storm. We now know that at least 37 people have died in Hurricane Florence, 27 of them in North Carolina, eight in South Carolina, and two in Virginia. On Wednesday, President Trump toured hard-hit locations in North and South Carolina and promised that federal aid from Congress would be for coming.
0: Unfortunately, the money will be a lot, but it's going to come as fast as you need it to take care of everybody. And to all those impacted by this terrible storm, our entire American family is with you and ready to help. And you will recover.
2: It is nice to hear President Trump say that Congress will be forthcoming. We'll see if it actually comes through. Did he throw any paper towels at them? Not this time. Good. The impacts will last long after the TV cameras have gone. Officials warn that Florence's floodwaters will persist for weeks and will pose an extreme public health hazard, contaminated with bacteria and toxins from hog manure lagoons, coal ash waste impoundments, and sewage. At least three water treatment facilities so far have discharged partially treated or untreated wastewater into the environment all contribute to the high risk of waterborne and mosquito-borne diseases that will persist for months down the road.
1: One of those sewage treatment plants has leaked some 300,000 gallons of human waste into the floodwaters and into the nearby rivers.
2: Moody's analytics calculated preliminary economic losses as high as $22 billion and likely to go higher, putting Florence in the top 10 of the nation's costliest hurricanes. Farmers have suffered significant crop losses, and the floods drowned millions of chickens and more than 5,000 pigs that were trapped in massive barns. Hmm. The long tail of disasters like Florence underscore the disproportionate impact on low-income communities. Families who did not have the resources to evacuate before the storm, much less recover after. Only about 10% of homeowners in North and South Carolina are covered by federal flood insurance. On Tuesday, North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper promised to address the state's affordable housing crisis in the rebuilding process.
0: We want to plan this in a way that we get people back into housing as quickly as possible. This storm has put a spotlight on the issue of affordable housing that we have here in North Carolina and all across our state for that matter.
2: FEMA Director Brock Long pledged to rebuild homes and infrastructure with an eye to future storms and future flood threats.
0: There's a lot of tools in the toolbox. Um, I'm a big fan of doing it right. Let's don't rebuild to the pre-disaster standard, only to see it being blown out again. We got to we've got to factor
1: in mitigation into the
0: recovery efforts and the dollars that we're putting
1: forward. Mitigation? Mitigation from what, Brock Long? I wonder what he's referring to.
2: But the North Carolina Home Builders Association has warned that Trump's new tariffs, announced this week on $200 billion in Chinese goods and raw materials, will increase the cost of recovering and rebuilding. Finally, the Trump administration moved again to actively make climate change worse this week. The Trump Interior Department's Bureau of Land Management formally proposed rolling back Obama-era rules that would have restricted leaks of methane, a very potent greenhouse gas, from oil and gas operations on public lands, requiring drillers to repair leaks, stop venting natural gas into the atmosphere, and to pay royalties to the public. The move follows a similar rollback by the Trump EPA. A few weeks ago, the EPA admitted then the rollback will increase hazardous air pollution. And the Interior Department admits the rollback means the public will lose nearly $800 million in royalties over the next 10 years.
1: So it's worse for the public health. Yep. It makes less money uh, for the government from royalties. Yep. So why are we rolling these back again?
2: Also, the fossil fuel industry can make a few more bucks.
1: And so that we can make climate change worse.
2: Hours later, the states of California and New Mexico teamed up to sue the administration to stop the rollback.
1: For much more on all of these stories, by the way, Donald Trump was giving out food in North Carolina in styrofoam packages. For much more on these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: And I'm Desi Doyen.
1: And this has been your Green News Report.
2: And breathe, just
1: breathe. Oh, trying to. Oh. Okay. We're okay. We're okay. We're just going to breathe. Yep. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer today as every day. And my thanks to our guest today, Drexel University's disaster master, Professor Scott Knowles. My thanks also to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Download it, share it with friends, tweet it out there. You can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. And, uh, oh, you can drop me email as well. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves or on your favorite podcasts or on your favorite streaming sites by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate we continue to do the work that we try to do here every day without corporate support without political support we rely only on listener support at bradblog.com slash donate so thank you for uh stopping by there in advance all right that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world